Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm your host, Christina Yerling-Biro. So this week, we're going to be talking about some very difficult topics, but it may also be the beginning of a cultural shift. Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, Brian Singer. Recently, there's been a wave of exposés, articles, and documentaries about allegations of sexual misconduct. Allegations that have dogged these artists and industry titans for years, sometimes even decades. And the stories have often seemed similar. Patterns of alleged abuse and rape against women and girls, boys and vulnerable youth. How can it be possible that these allegations have been industry and sometimes even public knowledge for years and still careers have flourished? Has the Me Too movement allowed for more survivors to come forward with their stories when the justice system often seems to have failed them? Rachel Leah is the culture and criminal justice writer at Salon, and she's been covering these topics extensively. I'm very happy she could join us here today. Ms. Leah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak with you. So for the past few years, we, of course, have had some big exposés on allegations of sexual misconduct, for example, Weinstein and Cosby, of course. But in the fact and in the past few months, several big shocking docs and articles have come up. Brian Singer, R. Kelly, Michael Jackson. What can you tell us a little bit about these latest exposés and allegations? Well, I think... None of these allegations that you mentioned, from Weinstein to Cosby to Singer to R. Kelly, are new, whether they're in written form or whether they're in documentary form. But I think documentary adds another layer to the kind of written exposés that we first had been getting beginning in October 2017 with the Harvey Weinstein exposés, which kind of mainstreamed the Me Too movement that Toronto Burke had started a decade before. And the documentary format adds another layer, allows us to see the alleged victims, to hear their stories in full. It allows us to have facial context and emotional context that maybe you won't be able to get just by reading their words that are quoted in these articles. So I think it's just continuing to build upon the Me Too movement, continuing to build upon this moment that more women and also men too are coming forward with their stories of sexual assault. We're talking about, you know, how do we shift this culture? And I think these documentaries are a good example of how far we have to go, but also that we are beginning to make some progress. There has been a lot of movement, for example, against R. Kelly since the surviving R. Kelly documentary aired on Lifetime. You know, it was an extraordinary effort by Dream Hampton, but it really kind of culminated certainly almost 30 years of allegations against the singer and a lot of reporting that had been done beforehand. But it really centered these women who some of them were girls at the time when they say they were abused by him. Children, really. Preteens, even. Um, But we allowed to see them, put a face to them. I think the hardest part is that, you know, Women often are not believed no matter who it is, but there is a heightened sense of disbelief or skepticism when it is a famous person, when it is a wealthy person. And critics often hold up, oh, this is about money, this is about fame. You know, often really it means that that's another barrier for victims to kind of 
face when they are trying to come forward and are trying to get some justice. And so following this six-part documentary, you know, R. Kelly was finally dropped from his label. Investigations have been opening in Atlanta and in Chicago. There's been, you know, tons of artists that he collaborated with were denouncing him, denouncing that they collaborated with him, speaking out. It was really a response that we hadn't yet seen, even though there had been so many allegations, so many stories, so much reporting done about it. But so it showed the power of the documentary. Because as you were saying, some of these allegations, like Ryan Singer, who is, he directed um, at least part of Bohemian Rhapsody, R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, these allegations have been in the media yeah. and, and in, in even in public knowledge for decades. How is this possible that something can go on for, I mean, something really criminal? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in one of my articles, I quoted that Hannah uh, Gatsby line, which is like, you know, society Mm -hmm. has proven how little we care about women and children. And I really believe that. And that really is shown through the kind of mainstreaming of the Me Too movement and all these allegations is how many people were complicit how many people turned the other way, how many people essentially sold kids, children out for profit, for fame, for access, whatever it may be. I think that is such a huge takeaway from the Brian Singer expose that The Atlantic ran from the surviving R. Kelly documentary is how this web of complicity. And you see that with Harvey Weinstein as well. You know, it was a systematic, like systematic, kind of targeting of people who are vulnerable for Brian Singer, allegedly it is young, queer, kind of unprotected boys with R. Kelly. Yeah, it was, you know, young, black, low income, often estranged from their families, allegedly. Harvey Weinstein, it was often young actresses who felt like he could make or break their careers. And you see these patterns over over and over again, and you see the ways that people helped. I mean, R. Kelly famously is, you know, has a lot of trouble reading and writing. And so how was he booking flights and coordinating travel for all these, you know, bringing all these alleged girls and women Mm -hmm. to him? He had to have loads of help. You know, and I think what unfortunately happens is that the criminal justice system is so unprepared and unqualified to deal with sexual assault that each one of R. Kelly, Brian Singer, and Michael Jackson all had cases brought about them at one point of time that ended up either being, you know, dismissed or they were acquitted or whatever. And so that kind of became the benchmark that they could turn to like, nope, this, we already went through this. I was, you know, proven innocent. And uh, it, it allowed some people to, I think, kind of turn away and stop paying attention, even though the allegations continued. Right, as if they were um, they were paid off in a sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be, you know, one case turned out, to, you know, to fall flat. That either that meant it wasn't true, or that meant that all the other cases that weren't brought forward, you know, were not true. You know, for our Kelly's situation, right. his trial they talked about extensively in the Survivor R. Kelly documentary. You know, it was largely dismissed because the alleged underage girl in the videotape did not come forward. And so while the jurors felt pretty confident that it was R. Kelly in the tape, they couldn't 
actually corroborate if it was in fact an underage girl because she refused to come forward, even though there were family members who aren't saying, this is my niece, this is my family member, you mm-hmm. know, it, it is complicated. In Michael Jackson's 2005 case, one of the defense witnesses who spoke up for Michael Jackson is actually in the center of the Michael Jackson documentary that came out this year, you know? And so it also shows like an evolution. Right. And I think that shows an evolution of our society and our culture too. And also rethinking what abuse is, what, you know, predatory behavior is, what sexual misconduct is. I think we're starting to also understand hopefully and have more nuanced discussions about what that means. And it's not sexual assault is not just a stranger in a dark corner who puts a gun to your head and rapes you. In fact, it rarely is that. It's a manipulation and sort of a community of people help, uh, making this happen. Exactly. It's about power um, rather than sex. And so that takes, especially if you're talking about children, that takes a reckoning of, in it of itself. You've also written extensively about, you know, the victims and the survivors and, and how hard it is for them to get justice in these type of cases, as you were mentioning. And you wrote about Lady Gaga testifying on behalf of Kesha. Um, tell me a little bit about this case. Yeah, it's a really complicated case just for the fact that both Kesha and her former producer, Dr. Luke, who she was signed under have means. And so there's a lot, there has been, you know, Kesha initially started this case, but Dr. Luke has since been counter suing her for defamation and, you know, parts of it gets thrown out. It's so it's very, it's very convoluted, but Kesha alleges that Dr. Luke at one point in time drugged her and raped her. And she has been trying to, was trying to get kind of released from his label. And that was the really big bulk of the concern. And that's why the free Kesha hashtag sprouted is that it wasn't even just about the alleged sexual assault that she said happened, but that she was still forced to work with this man and still, and he still profits off her and still profiting off of her music. Um, And, you know, that, devastation that you know is just incredible to think about um what that would mean to face your alleged accuser every day or to know that he is literally profiting off of your career um and so you know it has implicated several other high profile people like lady gaga and lady gaga is you know a sexual assault survivor herself she is a huge advocate for this she also um spoke out about r kelly recently um because she collaborated with him about five years ago and so she was deposed for this case and she was being interrogated about what she knew and what kesha had told her and what she had witnessed and you know it really demonstrated how, as I said, how difficult it is to prove sexual assault cases in the criminal justice system, because it is so often, you know, happening behind closed doors. It's kind of a he said, she said situation. Often women out of fear, out of manipulation, out of many, many reasons don't come forward until years later. So there's very there's often very little like substantive evidence as far as like you know a videotape or you know even corroborating witnesses because 
you know, as she even says in her testimony, she's like, you know, you know, predators know not to do this in front of other people. Like they, you know, specifically do this behind closed doors. They specifically conceal this. Often it's so at odds with their public persona. You know what I'm saying? And also, you know, especially I can only speak from the United States, but the criminal justice system has been from the beginning absolutely compromised by Mm -hmm. racism and sexism. It is extremely hard for any people from any of those communities to get justice in the criminal justice system because essentially it is not designed to work for them. It becomes a really huge burden to overcome if you do want to see justice in that way. I mean, we saw what happened with Bill Cosby. It was over 60 women who accused him, you know, two trials before he, you know, was found guilty and sentenced to prison, which is just a huge burden, you know, to to have to reach. And that's what I think is so uh, unbelievable as sort of, you know, just someone who, who reads about these things is the amount of um, victims that come forward in so many of these cases. We're talking 50, 60, um, 50 people interviewed in the Atlantic right. uh, article, 60 women come forward um, for year after year, decade after decade. And at some point you just want to yell, what, how much more do you need? I mean, that, that's, that's just insane. Yeah. And I mean, even the R. Kelly documentary was six hours. Yes. You know, I mean, and then finally people were like, okay, I'll stop listening to his music. You know, it's just, it's an impossible kind of benchmark. Um, and I think, so how much is the celebrity factor in this? Um, the fact that there's, this can go on for so long. Is that a big part of it? I think it's a huge part of it because, as I said, it's about power. And so celebrities often have a ton of power, a ton of influence, a ton of money. But, you know, a a boss has power over you. Older family member who is molesting you has power over you. So we see this kind of power dynamic. It manifests in different ways. But that is really the crux of sexual abuse um, is this power dynamic and certainly celebrities wield kind of an unparalleled power that they can take advantage of that they can use to manipulate people we have such a celebrity culture too especially in the united states where we just worship celebrities and stay you know we call ourselves stands and you know we have hives and where you have millions of people just ready to come out the woodwork and kind of slam whoever speaks out against them. It's incredibly difficult to come forward. And I think that's why when someone is able to open that floodgate, you see so many people coming through it because it's not so much that they're jumping on the bandwagon, but it offers a little bit of protection to say I was a victim as well and not have to be necessarily the first one because people are so, you see it so often not believed still. You were mentioning, you said before that after the R. Kelly documentary, people, you know, finally were saying, I won't listen to his music anymore. What are your thoughts on this whole separating the art from the artist debates? Is that something, um, you know, people should do? Stop listening to Michael Jackson's music or R. Kelly's music or watching Bohemian Rhapsody and or, or, you know, how should people be thinking about things like this? Yeah, it's complicated. I admittedly don't really believe in the separating the art from the artist, but I do think it can be on a case by case basis. Certainly with someone like R. Kelly, 
his music is so connected to his sexual kind of preferences and life, you know, and in the documentary, I thought it made, you know, very, very clear and it did it so well, how connected his recording, how, you know, how allegedly he had all these young girls in the studio with him. These songs that he made were allegedly about these underage girls that he were he was sleeping with. You know, so there is no separation of an art from an artist when the art is about this predation, is about this abuse. I think it can be a little more difficult when we're talking about collaborations. Um, you know, should Bohemian Rhapsody be thrown away because of the director? There's so many other people involved in that endeavor. And um, I don't, you know, really know. I certainly think that the people involved in Bohemian Rhapsody should speak out and should speak out in support of, you know, Brian Singer's alleged victims. But I do also hold them somewhat accountable, certainly the executives, because as, you know, the Atlantic Expose made clear, these allegations against Brian Singer are not new. And so you made a decision that that didn't matter. Same with anybody who works with R. Kelly. I don't want to listen to those songs. You made a decision that the decades of allegations didn't matter. So, you know, it is complicated, but I think also often that is our own, as I said, if justice is so hard to get in the criminal justice system, where can we hold people accountable? And I do believe in social deaths. And that's what we're seeing with R. Kelly is you know, if you stop su supporting him, stop going to his shows, stop listening to his music, that is taking away revenue sources, you know, like stop having him go on tours where he famously and allegedly preys on young girls, stop giving him this access. And I believe that with other artists as well who've been accused. Um, and I also think what's so problematic about kind of separating the art from the artist conversation is it just totally takes away the conversation from the victims. And it's all about kind of centering these powerful men and their reputations. And that's what we've done forever. It's always about them and their reputations. And I think what's powerful and what we need to make sure we're constantly prioritizing is that these conversations that we're having now, which are very new, is about the victims. It's about, needs to be about their healing. And so I think we always wanna interrogate like, what type of conversations are we being roped into having? And is it the same kind of centering of the predators? Yeah, because you were saying that at the top here that there there's sort of many ways of healing and, and, and if the criminal justice system isn't serving you, then one way is journalism and documentaries and, and a way for victims to speak out. And even Tarana Burke, you were mentioning the founder of, of Me Too, she said that, I hope we're really able to influence pop culture. How do you think there are ways that, that we can influence pop culture to sort of change this situation for victims and potential victims and, and to sort of structure the power in a different way. It's not even just journalism, but what I said is storytelling, um, how powerful that can be. And I think Tarana, she's talked about that a lot and she's engaged in that a lot and shown that. And I think what's really powerful about that too is kind of we start to dispel archetypes or ideas about who we think is a victim and who is not. You know, I think the case 
of Terry Crews has been a perfect example of how... Can you explain that case for those who Yeah, so know? Terry Crews, um, famous uh, actor. He's an extremely, you know, tall, big, muscular guy. In Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? You know, totally the opposite about what you would think you know, of someone who would be a victim. Number one, he's a man, which is great because he's really ushered in that awareness, but just physically um, who he is. And he says that at a Hollywood party, he was assaulted by an agent. An agent just kind of groped him in front of his wife. He first came out with his own story once he saw all these women in Hollywood who were just getting disparaged by the press and by, you know, publicity machines from these people. And he was just like, I can't take you guys calling them liars anymore. Like, I, this happened to me. And since then, he's been such a powerful advocate for sexual assault awareness and to change rape culture. And so I think that's a great example is like dispelling. And also, you know, we know that when you know, it's someone that you know, or someone that you trust, or someone that you love, that can be a powerful way to kind of inspire empathy and, you know, convince people. And so just the sheer storytelling aspect of encouraging others to come forward, encouraging others to share their stories. So it's not necessarily just this actor over here that you never heard about, but all of a sudden, you know, your niece is, you know, telling a story that you never knew, or co-worker or whatever you know we start to think differently and develop more empathy for when we know who they are and when we understand it more and I think that's really key and that's what Tarana Burke has really promoted a lot is that there's been such a lack of understanding you know what I'm saying for so long it was like what was she wearing what did she do how did she kind of ask for it why did she go into this situation you know it was kind of so she much she was drunk or she was right. yeah whatever we you know there's a million ways that we kind of undercut victims and it's such a misunderstanding of what rape culture is and how even you know as you said you know a misteaching of consent um relationships of communication and i think i think we are starting to interrogate some of those some of those things as well even you know the kind of problematic nature of boys will be boys how are we teaching boys you know I remember I used to always hear growing up, you know, oh, you got to man up or like, you know, boy, you, you stop hugging boys at a certain age, you know, um, and all these things kind of, kind of encourage this aggression and this lack of empathy and this, this really kind of predatory type, you know, and, you know, meanwhile, girls and women are just kind of deemed as weak or, you know, whatever. And so I think, I think that's that's some ways that we're thinking about shifting the culture, but it's it's really constantly an uphill battle, you know. Well, finally, do you still sort of see things in a more positive light today that these um, um, exposés and print, that it's easier to, to sort of bring these type of allegations to light and it actually does affect people's careers and does change things in corporations and people start thinking about different ways of structuring power do you, do you see are you still positive or are you positive as the direction we're going um i i'm not sure i feel that in some ways i do notice real changes that are positive but I'm also weary to kind of say that it's positive because I'm still waiting for kind of this you know air of belief 
to, you know, reach out to people who are not famous, to people who are not wealthy, to people who, especially who are already marginalized in our society. You know, Tarana Burke started this for black girls and black women, and it's largely kind of been, you know, appropriated from them into Hollywood, into the music industry, into these spaces. And not that these, I don't want justice for those women as well, but I'm not sure that it's, that it is kind of, opening up evenly or trickling down to everyone else. And I so mm-hmm. I think that is the real test is society has changed not when a wealthy white woman white woman who's famous is believed, but when, you know, the rest of us are. Um and I'm not sure mm-hmm. that that's true yet. I want to be optimistic because I do feel like we are seeing at least reflections, you know, um the Lorena Bobbitt story coming out um, on Amazon this month, I think is really positive. The kind of rethinking of Monica Lewinsky, um, you know, as a victim herself, you know, I think we are having, we are having a reckoning, but, you know, it just needs to continue to open up to other women as well, other victims. Yeah, the Lorena Bobbitt um, is interesting because that's a Jordan Peele has produced a documentary where she, this is the woman who um, is mostly known for cutting off um, her husband's penis. Um, but what wasn't discussed during those years when this was more of a punchline was all the abuse that she suffered at his hands. And that this is actually now coming, you know, it's her turn to tell her story in a way that she didn't in the 90s, um, which is, of course, a change in exactly what you were saying in the storytelling Right, exactly. Aspect. And I think that is really powerful. Even Monica Lewinsky, you know, with the Clinton affairs, you know, right. where under or in her own words, you know, she, she wrote a really powerful piece. I think it was earlier this year for uh, Vanity Fair. Um, just, you know, reckoning. And that's and that's what I say even about Michael Jackson's alleged victims or people who are, you know, Monica Lewinsky was in her early 20s. It also has to be a reckoning ourselves. And that's why it's so problematic because the adults know better and they need to do better. Technically, Monica Lewinsky was an adult, but Bill Clinton was much, much older and much more powerful. The people around, you know, around Brian Singer, the people around R. Kelly, these are the adults. As adults, it is our jobs to protect children. Right. We've been failing. But I do think there's power in storytelling, a power in storytelling to shift culture, but we certainly still have a long way to go. Well, let's hope we move in that direction. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much to Rachel Leah. You can read her articles on Salon.com and follow her on Twitter at Rachel K. Leah. And you can follow us. Send us your thoughts and comments on our Twitter at PodPopCulture. And I'm at Christina Biru. Subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate the show. This show was edited by Katrin Lundell, and I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next week. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, Next Best Picture 
Bet.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. 